Section 23 of The Evolution of Modern Medicine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Evolution of Modern Medicine by Sir William Osler. Section 23. Chapter 5. The Rise and Development of Modern Medicine. Part 2. The Early Years of the Century saw the rise of modern clinical medicine in Paris. In the art of observation, men had come to a standstill. I doubt very much whether Corvisaw, in 1800, was any more skillful in recognizing a case of pneumonia than was Aretius in the second century A.D. But disease had come to be more systematically studied. Special clinics were organized, and teaching became much more thorough. Anyone who wishes to have a picture of the medical schools in Europe in the first few years of the century should read the account of the travels of Joseph Frank of Vienna. The description of Corvisa is of a pioneer in clinical teaching, whose method remains in vogue today in France. The ward visit, followed by a systematic lecture in the amphitheater. There were still lectures on Hippocrates three times a week, and bleeding was the principal plan of treatment. One morning, Frank saw thirty patients out of one hundred and twelve bled. Corvisaw was the strong clinician of his generation, and his accurate studies on the heart were among the first that had concentrated attention upon a special organ. To him, too, is due the reintroduction of the art of percussion in internal disease, discovered by Auenberger. In 1761. The man who gave the greatest impetus to the study of scientific medicine at this time was Bichat, who pointed out that the pathological changes in disease were not so much in organs as in tissues. His studies laid the foundation of modern histology. He separated the chief constituent elements of the body into various tissues, possessing definite physical and vital qualities. Sensibility and contractibility are the fundamental qualities of living matter and of the life of our tissues. Thus, Bichat substituted for vital forces vital properties, that is to say, a series of vital forces inherent in the different tissues. His Anatomic General, published in 1802, gave an extraordinary stimulus to the study of the finer processes of disease, and his famous Recherches sur la vie et sur la mort, 1800, dealt a death blow to old iatromechanical and iatrochemical views. His celebrated definition may be quoted La vie et l'assemblée de propriété vitale qui résiste aux propriétés physiques, ou bien la vie et l'assemblée des fonctions qui résistent à la mort. Life is the sum of the vital properties that withstand the physical properties, or Life is the sum of the functions that withstand death. Bichat is another pathetic figure in medical history. His meteoric career ended in his 31st year. He died a victim of post-mortem wound infection. At his death, Corvisaw wrote Napoleon, Bichat has just died at the age of 30. That battlefield on which he fell is one which demands courage and claims many victims. He has advanced the science of medicine. No one at his age has done so much so well. 
It was a pupil of Corvisart, René Théophile Léonec, who laid the foundation of modern clinical medicine. The story of his life is well known. A Breton by birth, he had a hard uphill struggle as a young man, a struggle of which we have only recently been made aware by the publication of a charming book by Professor Rousseau of Nantes. Léonic, Avant, 1806. Influenced by Corvisar, he began to combine the accurate study of cases in the wards with anatomical investigations in the dead house. Before Leonek, the examination of a patient had been largely by sense of sight, supplemented by that of touch, as in estimating the degree of fever or the character of the pulse. Auenberger's Inventum Novum of Percussion, recognized by Corvisar, extended the field, but the discovery of auscultation by Leonek and the publication of his work, De l'Auscultation Mediate, in 1819, marked an era in the study of medicine. The clinical recognition of individual diseases had made really very little progress. With the stethoscope begins the day of physical diagnosis. The clinical pathology of the heart, lungs, and abdomen was revolutionized. Leinick's book is in the category of the eight or ten greatest contributions to the science of medicine. His description of tuberculosis is perhaps the most masterly chapter in clinical medicine. This revolution was effected by a simple extension of the Hippocratic method from the bed to the dead house, and by correlating the signs and symptoms of a disease with its anatomical appearances. The pupils and successors of Corvisar, Bale, Andral, Boulon, Chomel, Fiori, Bertoneau, Rayer, Cruvelier, and Trousseau, brought a new spirit into the profession. Everywhere, the investigation of disease by clinical pathological methods widened enormously the diagnostic powers of the physician. By this method, Richard Bright, in 1836, opened a new chapter on the relation of disease of the kidney to dropsy and to albuminous urine. It had already been shown by Blackwell and by Wells, the celebrated Charleston, South Carolina physician in 1811, that the urine contained albumin in many cases of dropsy. But it was not until Bright began a careful investigation of the bodies of patients who had presented these symptoms that he discovered the association of various forms of disease of the kidney with anasarca and albumous urine. In no direction was the harvest of this combined study more abundant than in the complicated and confused subject of fever. The work of Lewis and of his pupils, W. W. Gerhardt and others, revealed the distinction between typhus and typhoid fever, and so cleared up one of the most obscure problems in pathology. By Morgani's method of anatomical thinking, Skoda in Vienna, Schonlein in Berlin, Graves and Stokes in Dublin, Marshall Hall, C.J.B. Williams, and many others introduced the new and exact methods of the French and created a new clinical medicine. A very strong impetus was given by the researches of Virchow on cellular pathology, which removed the seats of disease from the tissues, as taught by Bichat, to the individual elements, the cells. The introduction of the use of the microscope in clinical work widened greatly our powers of diagnosis. 
and we obtain thereby a very much clearer conception of the actual process of a disease. In another way, too, medicine was greatly helped by the rise of experimental pathology, which had been introduced by John Hunter, was carried along by Magendi and others, and reached its culmination in the epoch-making researches of Claude Bernard. Not only were valuable studies made on the action of drugs, but also our knowledge of cardiac pathology was revolutionized by the work of Trauba, Kahnheim, and others. In no direction did the experimental method effect such a revolution as in our knowledge of the functions of the brain. Clinical neurology, which had received a great impetus by the studies of Todd, Romberg, Lockhart, Clark, Duchesne, and Dwyer Mitchell, was completely revolutionized by the experimental work of Hitzig, Fritsch, and Ferrier on the localization and functions in the brain. Under Charceau, the school of French neurologists give great accuracy to the diagnosis of obscure affections on the brain and spinal cord, and the combined results of the new anatomical, physiological, and experimental work have rendered clear and definite what was formerly the most obscure and complicated section of internal medicine. The end of the fifth decade of the century is marked by a discovery of supreme importance. Humphrey Davy had noted the effects of nitrous oxide. The exhilarating influence of sulfuric ether had been casually studied, and Long, of Georgia, had made patients inhale the vapor until anesthetic, and had performed operations upon them when in this state. But it was not until October 16, 1846, in the Massachusetts General Hospital, that Morton, in a public operating room, rendered a patient insensible with ether, and demonstrated the utility of surgical anesthesia. The rival claims of priority no longer interest us, but the occasion is one of the most memorable in the history of the race. It is well that our colleagues celebrate Ether Day in Boston. No more precious boon has ever been granted to suffering humanity. In 1857, a young man, Louis Pasteur, sent to the Lilla Scientific Society a paper on lactic acid fermentation, and in December of the same year presented to the Academy of Sciences in Paris a paper on alcoholic fermentation, in which he concluded that the deduplication of sugar into alcohol and carbonic acid is correlative to a phenomenon of life. A new era in medicine dates from those two publications. The story of Pasteur's life should be read by every student. It is one of the glories of human literature, and as a record of achievement and of nobility of character, is almost without an equal. At the middle of the last century, we did not know much more of the actual causes of the great scourges of the race, the plagues, the fevers, and the pestilences, than did the Greeks. Here comes Pastor's great work. Before him, Egyptian darkness. With his advent, a light that brightens more and more as the years give us ever fuller knowledge. The facts that fevers were catching, that epidemics spread, that infection could remain attached to articles of clothing, etc., all gave support to the view that the actual cause was something alive, a contagium vivum. It was really 
a very old view, the germs of which may be found in the fathers, but which was first clearly expressed, so far as I know, by Fracastorius, the Veronese physician, in the sixteenth century, who spoke of the seeds of contagion passing from one person to another. And he first drew a parallel between the processes of contagion and the fermentation of wine. There was more than one hundred years before Kircher, Leuwenhock, and others began to use the microscope and to see animalcula, etc., in water, and so give a basis for the infinitely little view of the nature of disease germs. And it was a study of the processes of fermentation that led Pasteur to the shore ground on which we now stand. Out of these researches arose a famous battle, which kept Pasteur hard at work for four or five years, the struggle over spontaneous generation. It was an old warfare, but the microscope had revealed a new world, and the experiments on fermentation had lent great weight to the omni vivum ex ovo doctrine. The famous Italians, Reddy and Spallanzani, had led the way in their experiments, and the latter had reached the conclusion that there is no vegetable and no animal that has not its own germ. But heterogenesis became the burning question, and Pouchet in France and Bastian in England led the opposition to Pasteur. The many famous experiments carried conviction to the minds of scientific men and destroyed forever the old belief in spontaneous generation. All along, the analogy between disease and fermentation must have been in Pasteur's mind. And then came the suggestion. What would be most desirable is to push those studies far enough to prepare the road for a serious research into the origin of various diseases. If the changes in lactic, alcohol, and butyric fermentations are due to minute living organisms, why should not the same tiny creatures make the changes which occur in the body in the putrid and suppurative diseases? With an accurate training as a chemist, Having been diverted in his studies upon fermentation into the realm of biology, and nourishing a strong conviction of the identity between putrefactive changes of the body and fermentation, Pasteur was well prepared to undertake investigations which had hitherto been confined to physicians alone. So impressed was he with the analogy between fermentation and the infectious diseases, that in 1863, he assured the French emperor of his ambition to arrive at the knowledge of the causes of putrid and contagious diseases. After a study upon the diseases of wines, which has had most important practical bearings, an opportunity arose which changed the whole course of his career and profoundly influenced the development of medical science. A disease of the silkworm had for some years ruined one of the most important industries in France, and in 1865 the government asked Pasteur to give up his laboratory work and teaching and to devote his whole energies to the task of investigating it. The story of the brilliant success, which followed years of application to the problem, will be read with deep interest by every student of science. It was the first of his victories in the application of the experimental methods of a trained chemist to the problems of biology, and it placed his name 
high in the group of the most illustrious benefactors of practical industries. In a series of studies on the diseases of beer and on the mode of production of vinegar, he became more and more convinced that these studies on fermentation had given him the key to the nature of the infectious diseases. It is a remarkable fact that the distinguished English professor of the 17th century, the man who more than anyone else of his century appreciated the importance of the experimental method, Robert Boyle had said that he who could discover the nature of ferments and fermentation would be more capable than anyone else of explaining the nature of certain diseases. In 1876, there appeared in Cohn's Beitrage zur Morphologie de Pfanzen, Volume 2, pages 277 through 310, a paper on the etiology of anthrax by a German district physician in Wallstein, Robert Koch, which is memorable in our literature as the starting point of a new method of research into the causation of infectious diseases. Koch demonstrated the constant presence of germs in the blood of animals dying from the disease. Years before, those organisms had been seen by Pollander and Devane, but the epoch-making advance of Koch was to grow those organisms in a pure culture outside the body, and to produce the disease artificially by inoculating animals with the cultures. Koch is really our medical Galileo, who by means of a new technique, pure cultures and isolated staining, introduced us to a new world. In 1878, followed his study on the ideology of wound infections, in which he was able to demonstrate conclusively the association of microorganisms with the disease. The next great advance was the discovery by Pasteur of the possibility of so attenuating or weakening the poison that an animal inoculated had a slight attack, recovered, and was then protected against the disease. More than 80 years had passed since on May 14, 1796, Jenner had vaccinated a child with cowpox and proved that a slight attack of one disease protected the body from a disease of an allied nature. An occasion equally famous in the history of medicine was a day in 1881 when Pasteur determined that a flock of sheep vaccinated with the attenuated virus of anthrax remained well when every one of the unvaccinated infected from the same material had died. Meanwhile, from Pasteur's researches on fermentation and spontaneous generation, a transformation had been initiated in the practice of surgery, which, it is not too much to say, has proven one of the greatest boons ever conferred upon humanity. It had long been recognized that now and again a wound healed without the formation of pus, that is, without suppuration. But both spontaneous and operative wounds were almost invariably associated with that process, and moreover, they frequently became putrid, as it was then called, infected, as we should say. The general system became involved, and the patient died of blood poisoning. So common was this, particularly in old, ill-equipped hospitals that many surgeons feared to operate, and the general mortality in all surgical cases was very high. 
believing that it was from outside that the germs came which caused the decomposition of wounds just as from the atmosphere the sugar solution got the germs which caused the fermentation a young surgeon in glasgow joseph lister applied the principles of pastor's experiments to their treatment from lister's original paper i quote the following turning now to the question how the atmosphere produces decomposition of organic substances we find that a flood of light has been thrown upon this most important subject by the philosophic researches of m pasteur who has demonstrated by thoroughly convincing evidence that it is not to its oxygen or to any of its gaseous constituents that the air owes this property but to minute particles suspended in it which are the germs of various low forms of life long since revealed by the microscope and regarded as merely accidental concomitants of putrescence but now shown by pasteur to be its essential cause resolving the complex organic compounds into substances of similar chemical constitution just as the yeast plant converts sugar into alcohol and carbonic acid from these beginnings modern surgery took its rise and the whole subject of wound infection not only in relation to surgical diseases but to childbed fever forms now one of the most brilliant chapters in the history of preventative medicine with the new technique and experimental methods the discovery of the specific germs of many of the more important acute infections followed each other with bewildering rapidity typhoid fever diphtheria cholera tetanus plague pneumonia gonorrhea and most important of all tuberculosis it is not too much to say that the demonstration by cock of the bacillus tuberculosis in eighteen eighty two is in its far-reaching results one of the most momentous discoveries ever made of almost equal value have been the researches upon the protozoan forms of animal life as causes of disease as early as eighteen seventy three spirilla were demonstrated in relapsing fever laveran proved the association of hematozoa with malaria in 1880 in the same year griffith evans discovered trypanosomes in a disease of horses and cattle in india and the same type of parasite was found in the sleeping sickness amoeba were demonstrated in one form of dysentery and in other tropical diseases protozoa were discovered so that we were really prepared for the announcement in 1905 by Schauden, of the discovery of reprotozoan parasite in syphilis just fifty years had passed since pasteur had sent in his paper on lactic acid fermentation to the lilla scientific society half a century in which more had been done to determine the true nature of disease than in all the time that had passed since hippocrates celsus makes the oft-quoted remark that to determine the cause of a disease often leads to the remedy and it is the possibility of removing the cause that gives such importance to the new researches on disease end of part 2 end of section 23